I'm Christian Blood, KTSA News, and here we go with the Jack Riccardi Show. He said with a mix of trepidation and anticipation. <laughs> that was pure curiosity. delight. That was delight. <laughs> delight? Yeah. <laughs> with quivering delight. That's right. Uh, would, you, uh, would, you say, would you say that the Riverwalk is a tourist trap? Oh, yeah. Really? Yeah, I would. See, growing up in Dallas-Fort Worth, the one thing that we knew, well, two things, San Antonio Spurs, and why can't the mm-hmm. Dallas Mavericks beat them, and the mm-hmm. Riverwalk. There you go. Mm-hmm. So when you say tourist trap, what do you, how do you define tourist trap? Lake of the Ozarks. I can tell you all about it. <laughs> If there's water, and in this case, people aren't going to get in it and do boating and so forth, but uh, if people come specifically for that, if there's business, uh, gift shops, if that's an attraction, it's a tourist trap. Well, isn't then doesn't every city have a tourist trap? I mean, isn't every city, doesn't every city have a district or a neighborhood or a place where tourists go to buy trinkets and keepsakes? and? Yeah. I think probably every city tries, but I think you would agree some are quite a bit more successful than others. Well, I mean, sure, yeah. There's some cities that don't have a lot to to offer. Uh, there's a uh, a new list out that lists the San Antonio Riverwalk as one of the top ten biggest tourist traps in the country. Mm. Uh, and this was a survey done by a property management uh, company called Casago, which I've never heard of. Uh, it says it's the eighth biggest tourist trap. In the United States, it's one of only two locations in Texas that make the list, the other one being that steakhouse in Amarillo where they have the 72-ounce steak that you have to eat in an hour. Um, but I, I got to say, I, I don't think that I, I think the Riverwalk is where tourists go, but I don't think it's a tourist trap. Well, what's the difference? Well, it, tourists can go, uh, tourists go to the Alamo. Is the Alamo a tourist trap? Mm, I would say probably not. Okay. I mean, you pay, when you go to any downtown of any big city, okay, if you decide to eat a meal in midtown Manhattan, or if you go down, you know, to the, uh, you know, the, the Miracle Mile in Chicago, or wherever you go, I mean, you know that things, hotels will cost more, restaurants will cost more, mm-hmm. but that's, you know that when you travel, everybody knows that. But to me, a tourist trap is when you go somewhere and it's not, what you expected or it it doesn't live up to the hype and when people review the the river walk like when you when you read travel articles or you you see online reviews people rave about it i mean it's beautiful it's romantic it's all lit up at christmas time it's oh. and it's the i think it's the number one or number two tourist attraction in texas so people keep coming i mean it's not like the word has gotten out that it doesn't you know it doesn't measure up Okay, so you're you're using a different definition than the one I came in with. It being tourist trap, meaning more of a disappointment. I would not say the Riverwalk is a disappointment. Definitely a tourist attraction. And I would say the same about the Alamo. But I can't think of an example of, of a place I've been to as a tourist where I got there and I said, this is it? Mm-hmm. And that mm-hmm. would be a tourist trap is what you're saying. I, I think so. This is what the Merriam-Webster definition is. A place that attracts tourists and charges high prices. Hmm. And obviously, that's not a trap. I mean, if you know you're, go- you know, like if you're going to an expensive city, 
you expect it to be expensive. See, now I've got to investigate what's a good definition of tourist trap. Well, fortunately for you, while you're investigating it, we're going to ask that question on today's JR poll. So there, you'll have that added Thank goodness. research tool. Right. 210-599-5555. Do you consider the Riverwalk to be a tourist trap? Now, i got to tell you, I don't go down there a lot. Uh, when I first moved here, I went down there a lot, and I checked things out, and I was int- interested in it and curious about it and stuff like that. I was also a lot younger. But I, I don't... I. It's probably, I've probably been down there twice in the last, you know, year. Um, I, I, and it's not that I'm rooting for it or, or pumping it up, but I don't think it's a tourist trap. I think it's, I think it's one of those places when, when people visit San Antonio and they want to see it. And I've taken many people from out of town to come, you know, who come here to visit. I've, I've taken them. I think everybody who's ever visited me, family, friends, I've always taken them there. They love it. And I don't think they're just saying that to make me feel better because what do I get out of it, right? They really do enjoy it. They really find it to be a unique and, and beautiful place to walk. And, yes, you pay more for stuff. And, yes, there's a lot of restaurants and uh, what is, what, what's the word? Souvenir. That's the word I was looking for. A lot of souvenir stores and kind of rinky-dink, you know, keychains, mugs, postcards. But that's every, that's anywhere you go. That's everywhere you go. I mean, that's even airports and stuff. You know, I'm not offended by that. Uh, to me, and this is where I guess Christian and I were, were differing, I would say a tourist trap is like, you know, you, you get to it and you feel like this wasn't worth coming to or paying to, to get to or, or paying to park for or something like that. But, but I mean, if you go anywhere in any city that is the place to be, if you go to Beale Street in Memphis, if you go, I mean, of course the prices are premium because that's what everybody is coming to. You, you know that. You're not, you know, the, the, the bargains, right? Like the, the cheap eats are never in the hot spot or the tourist mecca of any city. That's never going to be the case. What would you say? 210 599 5555. You consider the Riverwalk to be a tourist trap. A new survey says it's one of the biggest tourist traps in the country. Speaking of money, uh, today is the tax uh, man day. So it got pushed back, or actually, I guess, uh, was it yesterday or today? In any event, it used to be April 15th and they moved it around, but we, we, we've come to tax time again. And somebody was reminding me that there is a quote over the, um, IRS building in Washington, D.C. that reads, taxes are what we pay for a civilized society. And that quote, comes from Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, a legendary justice of the United States Supreme Court. Um, do you think taxes are what we pay for a civilized society? Do you, do you feel, because that statement suggests that we should be grateful for paying taxes. Do you feel grateful for paying your taxes? Do you feel like, speaking of, of getting what you're paying for, do you feel like you get what you pay for with your taxes? Because, you know, there are le- people on the left that will argue when we talk about cutting taxes, slashing taxes, tax reform, defanging the IRS. You know, there's always that argument. Well, you don't realize uh, how, how much you get and you, you, you're, you're an ingrate. And remember when Romney was running in 2012, there was that famous line that I forget. I think Elizabeth Warren said it or Barack Obama. One of them said it and then it became a rallying cry for the Republicans that year. And that was you didn't build that. Meaning, 
that when people talk about reducing government or reducing taxes, they are ingrateful for all the things that their taxes buy them. And that was what Oliver Wendell Holmes was saying. Of course, he said it a long time ago. Taxes are what we pay for a civil society. Um, do you think that is true? When I think about what government is doing nowadays, um, I don't see how you can argue that it's civilized. First of all, your taxes are taken out of your paycheck uh, in the form of withholding. You don't pay them. You never see them. Um, and then I think what they're basically doing is withholding a chunk of my productivity. And what they are doing is not all or entirely making the world a better place or making life easier or making it possible for me to do my thing and you do your thing. So the IRS whacks that money out of your paycheck but then when you think about the actions of the federal government today, does it seem like government of the people, by the people, for the people? And, of course, there's another tax that you're paying. Real wages are going down because of inflation. That's a tax that you're paying. So even if your salary figure has stayed the same, in other words, the, the company says we're still giving you X per year or X per pay period, uh, you, you have less that you can do with that because of inflation, ongoing high inflation. And there is no sign that either party has a handle on that or even cares about it. And, you know, I was thinking today about how the the Democrats still have the image of being the, the party of the little guy, but it's really not true. I mean, the IRS, since Joe Biden became president has gotten bigger, meaner, more aggressive, uh, is doing more audits, is going after working people that use Venmo and the Cash App. And these are not, these are not moguls of big business. These are people that are moving money around via, uh, you know, these apps, waiters and busboys and people that are just regular people. And so I don't know how much longer they can have this image that they are the champions of the downtrodden or the little guy when really uh, every single by every single measure uh the IRS the tax collecting arm of the government became crueler and meaner and scarier over these last 2 years. And then I was thinking too about uh now President Biden is threatening to veto the um the bill that would protect fairness and safety in women's uh, sports. As you know, there's a bill before Congress. We've talked about it, protection of women and girls in sports. Um, and it, it's, it's going to pass the House. I don't know about the Senate. But President Biden has already said it's dead on arrival. He'll veto it when it gets to his uh, desk. And so here you have women playing sports, girls playing sports. Again, a, a constituency of the Democratic Party, historically, right? They, they were the champions of women. They were the party for women. They, they were the only party women could possibly trust or count on. They were always on the right side of issues for women. This is the history, or the way they would write it. And, and now all of a sudden, I look at this and I go, boy, you know, they're going after the little guy for taxes. 
they've turned their back on women. In fact, they have a, a particularly hostile view of girls and women in this administration when it comes to the trans issue. And they're just not, I don't know when people are going to get it, but they are not the party they used to be or, or claimed to be. And their two biggest claims to fame, if you will, the little guy and women, they are going out of their way to prove that is not true. That is not who they are. Now, I'm not here to tell you to join the Republican Party. I'm not a joiner. I'm not a party guy. But, and they may not be, they may not be any better, but I'm just saying the Democrats are not who you thought they were 30 or 40 years ago. All right, do you think the Riverwalk is a tourist trap? I know it's hard to, to judge your own city and you don't see it the way people who visit here see it, or maybe you didn't even go there. Uh, but from what you've seen of it or when you've been, or if you can answer the question, would you say it's a tourist trap? 210-599-5555, the definition of a tourist trap, I looked it up because I, I, I kind of wondered if I was using the term right, uh, a place that attracts tourists and charges them high prices. Well, in that case, really every every city's downtown is a tourist trap. Uh, I would amend that definition. Look at me amending the dictionary. I would amend that definition to say it, it, it's, it's a tourist trap if you're paying more and you don't think it's worth more. Because when you go to places like New York City or Washington, D.C. as a tourist, you expect to pay, and you do. But to me, a tourist trap would mean, or if I described something as a tourist trap, it would be, I, this is not what I was expecting, or this was not worth the trip, or this was not worth parking the car. 210-599-5555, a survey done by the um, property management company Casago, ranks the Riverwalk as the eighth biggest tourist trap in the country because people used the term tourist trap in their TripAdvisor reviews. Um, we have two in the top ten, the other one being the Big Texan Steakhouse in Amarillo. California has uh, multiple tourist traps in the top ten, including Fisherman Wharf in San Francisco, which was number one, and the Hollywood Walk of Fame in Los Angeles, which was number nine. Uh, what do you think? 210-599-5555. And if you, if you don't think it's a tourist trap, what, what is a tourist trap around here? What would you describe as something here locally that is or would fit the definition of a tourist trap? Christine on Facebook says, Snake Farm. Which I think is that the thing up on up on thirty five? I've seen a sign over the years for a snake farm up there. I've never been to it, so I don't know. All right, two ten five nine nine fifty five fifty five. We're talking about that. Um, talking about uh, the you know the arrival of uh, tax day and what that means. And I, I do think that um, the Democratic Party has been resting on laurels for a long time as far as the little guy and defending the you know the blue collar worker and the wage earner and you still have democratic politicians that try to talk that talk but they're 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 phony it's unreliable um the truth is that right now neither party is the champion of people that um are hurting or are living paycheck to paycheck um, neither party has anybody that, that's serious about reducing the size of government. And when I see that quote from Oliver Wendell Holmes, um, 
I, I, I recognize the history there. There was a time when Americans paid taxes at a very modest clip and got incredible public works. They got cities and bridges and highways and, and things that enhanced modern day life. You could certainly argue at one time that, that, that you were paying for civilization. What you're paying for now is the deconstruction of civilization. I mean, the government today is a, is a weapon against civilization, not a preserver of it or a conserver of it. And so you're paying today for a government that's trying to erase pronouns and gender, that's pitting people against each other over race, that is um, essentially hollowing out institutions, whether it's the military or education. That makes paying taxes not only expensive but galling. It's like salt in the wound. I think that quote no longer applies, but we'll get your thoughts on that too at 210-599-5500. 55. All right, is the Riverwalk a tourist trap is our poll question. Jason's on the radio. Hi, Jason. How you doing, sir? So what do you think, Jason? Is the is the Riverwalk one of the biggest tourist traps in the country? I, I do. I mean, it's at the very least, it's one of the biggest tourist traps in Texas. And I always judge that on being a resident here. How many times do you go down there with your family? Probably not very often. Your immediate family that live in your household. It's usually only when somebody comes into town and somebody mm-hmm. that's never been there that you say, you know what, let's go down to the Riverwalk. It's mm-hmm. pretty cool. But then once you pay $25 to park and you pay a mm-hmm. fortune for drinks and food, then you're like, man, uh, I'm about ready to leave. <laughs> well, are you saying that it's for tourists or are you saying that it's not worth it? Uh, well, I-, I think it's worth it. I mean, it's, it's you know, You've done it once, you've done it a hundred times. So you go down there, you take the boat ride. Yeah. See, I agree with you. I don't keep going there. I don't need to see it over and over again. But I don't think people who experience it once feel like they got ripped off. Right. Yeah, I don't think you get ripped off. But, you know, the the people that are walking around there, the hundreds of people that fly in, you know, from other uh-huh. states and are going on vacation, all those people that are walking around downtown, they're all from some other state. They're not local guys. Right, that say, right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Walk and take another boat ride. Well, wouldn't you think that's true? Isn't that true for every city, though? Like, I, I doubt people that live in Memphis keep going to Beale Street or, you know, people that live in New York yeah. City don't keep hanging out in Times Square. I mean, every city has places that are really just for the visitors, right? Absolutely, and it's you know it's their only source of income sometimes to those downtown areas yeah. is from tourists. Right. Yeah, good point, Jason. Thank you. Two ten five nine nine fifty five fifty five. Tom is on the radio. Hi, Tom. Hey, how you doing? So, what do you think? Well, I uh, I guess I'd probably consider it a tourist trap by the definition. Maybe add a little something to it. I think maybe some folks come into town and they've built this thing up a little more in their mind and maybe they're a a little disappointed and therefore they stick that moniker, which like Mm -hmm. you kind of mentioned a lot of times it has a negative connotation. I don't think it Mm -hmm. necessarily always is, but then they're, you know, they're a little let down, but uh, if they, if they, if ones that enjoy it, they'll come back multiple times. I didn't live in San Antonio growing up, but I've been here 30 years now. And that was one of the things when we came into town, we'd always go to the Mm -hmm. river walk and, we right. still go down there occasionally. Uh, we got a handful of restaurants we enjoy down there, and right. uh, part of the reason we go to that restaurant is because we enjoy, you know, going downtown yeah. and going to the Riverwalk. So, yeah, uh, I guess what's I, confusing to people is I think some people think the tourist trap is just saying it's a place where tourists go, but to me, if you're calling something a tourist trap, you're saying 
it's a negative. It's it's not you know yeah. it's 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 something you should you should skip over or avoid. Tom, thank you. Quick reminder about a new feature on our show called the Jack Chat Line. It's two ten five nine nine fifty five fifty. And this is for when you can't wait on hold or you can't listen to the show live, but you maybe get the podcast. You want to comment on anything we talk about. 210-599-5550 for the Jack Chat line. Uh, just leave your first name, your city or town, your comment about anything we've talked about or anything, really. Uh, we'll play those back later on. And again, that's good for podcast listening or even just like when you're listening to the show and maybe we change topics and you didn't get in on the thing we had been talking about. You can... Hit up that line. Uh, so, is the Riverwalk, would you consider the Riverwalk to be a tourist trap? You're not a tourist. You you live here. Uh, and everybody has a different understanding of that term. It certainly is a tourist-centered place. It's, it's about tourists. It's for tourists, right? But on the other hand, there are people who live here and go there. There are people who live there. <laughs> That's their neighborhood, right? So what would you say, based on your understanding of the term tourist trap, uh, would you say the Riverwalk is? A new survey says it's one of the 10 biggest or worst tourist traps in the country. And Eileen is on the Jack Riccardi Show. Hi, Eileen. Hello. What do you think, Eileen? Um, well, I, I kind of feel like, like if maybe if it's a holiday and people want to see the boats on the water and the sparkly lights on the water, I know mm-hmm. that sounds weird, but, or like if you have family here or if there's an event like a band, but we don't get mm-hmm. too many people that want to come down here too much. Like, you know, band wise, I don't think and stuff, but I'm just saying like if like it's a holiday or something, or maybe got relatives here, and it's maybe like a one-time experience or a package deal with the Alamo. I mean, I I consider more the Alamo, but I guess that is kind of all connected in a way. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess what I'm asking is, if you were visiting San Antonio from some other place, and you went no, to the Riverwalk, yeah. no, no, I know, you, I know you're not, but if you did, would you think it was worth it? Nah. Not really. Okay. Right. I, Eileen I, I says consider it's consider more the Alamo the the deal, but that's the thing to see is the Alamo, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, Eileen. Uh two ten five nine nine fifty five fifty five. Uh top ten worst tourist traps in the country. Now, I, I don't have a lot of experience with the other places on this list, but it sounds to me like these are just places you would go like it mentions Fisherman's Wharf in San Francisco. I've never been to San Francisco. But if I went to San Francisco, I would want to go see Fisherman's Wharf. I've heard all about it. If I lived in San Francisco, maybe I'd be like, eh, you know, been there, done that, not interested. And I might even, I might even say to an out-of-towner, well, I know you've heard about such and such a place, but I can show you a better uh, I can give you a better experience. And I've said that to people who've come to visit me. Like, if if they've got more than a day, I'll take them to the places they think they want to see, but then you can then you can show them, like, the real San Antonio. You can take them to the places that, that we know uh, or we like or that we think are a better whatever, better experience, better deal, what what have you, more representative of our food or or whatever the case might be. Um but I don't. I don't think it's a tourist trap. I don't. I, I mean, in, in my travels, um, I think it's actually one of those places that's that's a, a really good representation of the city. 
I don't think it's a ripoff. I don't think it's embarrassing. Like some places you go and maybe it's all chain businesses. Like I've been in some downtowns in the Midwest where it's hard to know what city you're even in because everything you look at is a chain restaurant, a chain store, and you're like, we could be anywhere. At least when you're downtown in San Antonio, it's, there's some, there's enough, what, unique stuff that you you feel like, okay, I'm definitely in San Antonio. Uh, so how would you answer the question? It's our poll question today. Would you consider the Riverwalk to be a tourist trap? Also coming up on the show, we'll be talking with a city council candidate who is maybe one of the longest shots of all running against an incumbent uh, and see what his story is. Your calls here at 210-599-5555 on KTSA. And Dale is next on the radio. Dale, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jack. No, I don't think uh, San Antonio, downtown San Antonio, the Riverwalk, is a tourist trap. Um, when I think of a tourist trap, I think of, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but um, I lived in North Carolina for 10 years, and there was a place uh, called South of the Border. It was on I-95. It was just south of the North Carolina state border, and, boy, it was a it was a rat hole, but it was a tourist trap. It was kind of a funky place to go, and uh, just it had amusement rides and greasy restaurants and mm-hmm. hotels and campgrounds and stuff like that. So, mm-hmm. in my mind, that's what I think a tourist trap is. No, I think Santa, downtown San Antonio is beautiful. I mean, it's mm-hmm. a great mm-hmm. it's a great place to bring family. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, I, 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 I mean, if people are saying, if people are saying there are no bargains, uh, that's true of any downtown of any city. You're not, oh, yeah. if you go downtown in any big city, you're not, you're not there to save money. Yeah. Yeah. Try, try going to, you, you know, New York city and, you know, you're going to pay out the wazoo for right. a nice dinner right. there, you know, right. so anyways. All right. Dale, good point. Said. Thank you. Uh, appreciate your call. Let me get the another one here. Esteban is on the Jack Riccardi show. Hi, Esteban. Uh, you know, you don't have to pay to go on the Riverwalk if you want to eat and go to a shop, fine. I remember one day coming home from jury duty, I had the Via Pass, and I decided to heck with this, you know. I walked the Riverwalk to yeah. basically to Josephine Street, and it cost me nothing, and I yeah. enjoyed it. And yeah. so that's why it's not a tourist shop. You can go no. down there and walk it, and yep. it's Bureau San Antonio. I grew up in New Braunfels, man. It yeah. was something we did. There you go. There you go. Hey, if it's good enough for a boy from New Braunfels, should be good enough for the rest of the world. I like it. All right, 210-599-5555. And, uh, you know, uh, in addition to the JR poll, we just talk about what's going on in the world, what's going on in our lives. We're live doing that Monday through Friday from 4 to 7 here on KTSA. And if you can't listen during that time frame, that's just not a good time for you. You've got a lot of distractions. You can get whole episode podcasts of this show, meaning listen when you want, where you want. Just go to KTSA.com and pull down the on-demand menu there and find, for example, yesterday's show uh, or a show from last week. And it takes typically a couple of hours for the show to get to that place where it's a podcast so when the show ends tonight at seven that won't be a podcast immediately but give it till nine or ten o'clock tonight and there it will be and then you can listen nights weekends whatever you want to do um and uh you can also find the jack riccardi show at many of the other places you like to get your other podcasts so look for us there 
See if you can find us. There is something called the WNBL in uh, Australia. It's um, women's competitive semi-professional basketball. And they have now ruled that a player named Lexi Rogers is ineligible to compete. Uh, Lexi Rogers is a transgender female, biological male, transferring, identifying as a woman. Uh, they've announced that uh, they're not, and they, they said it with great sympathy, and we're, look, we, we mean no disrespect, but we're not going to let you uh, compete in a women's basketball league. I think that that is the only, not only common sense answer, but that is the only answer. If you are claiming to be a women's league, okay, if you are identifying yourself as a proponent of, a a promoter of uh, women in sports, that's the only policy that makes any sense. It it, it has nothing to do with being anti-trans people. Your, your job is not to be an ally to them. Your job is to promote women's sports. All my life, I heard people say how important it was for women to have leagues, programs, access, Title IX, schools needed to spend equal resources. They needed to uh, take money away from uh, male sports and build up women's sports so the opportunities were the same or equal. I, it, you you throw all of that away if you put a, a guy in the pool, if you put a guy on the court. It's it's why there is a WNBA, or in this case, the WNBL, as they call it. So, I, I, you know, one of the things we've got to do is not be pushed off point. Because when you start having this debate, people start in on the whole, you're a hater, and no. This is simple. When, when a league makes a decision like this, when a college, when the NCAA, when anybody makes a decision like this involving um, eligibility to play women's sports, that's all they're doing. It's not about anything else. Trying to make it about something else means you really don't have the argument. You really don't have the, the, the you know, logic is not on your side. So you're trying to appeal to people's emotions or make them feel guilty. Oh, why do you hate me? 210-599-5555. Um, I saw this. Uh, the, the, we talked yesterday about the mob takeover uh, of a neighborhood in Compton, California, where thousands of dollars worth of merchandise was uh, carried out of uh, a convenience store. Just, just completely, they picked, they picked this store clean. They took everything. They took the stuff that was valuable, but they took gum and donuts and Everything. And this was a uh, television, KTLA-TV, their Twitter feed. Uh, Compton residents say they have had enough of the escalating crime. Now, when people in a place that has elected progressives and Soros DAs and keeps electing them, when they say they've had enough, I'm not sure I understand what that means. You've had enough of what? You've had enough of the fruits of how you voted? I mean, who are you mad at? If you live in a blue city, 
If you're in Chicago, I'm sorry, you've had enough of what? Yourself? (laughs) I am sick to death of myself and the way I vote. I believe that in these places, there is a threshold they will have to reach, and they haven't reached it yet. They haven't had it good enough and hard enough. And then I look at San Antonio and I see these, these, these naive yes to prop A people yard signs. And I think there's somebody that hasn't had enough yet. Do we have to have what these other places have had? Do we have to go through? Do we have to personally experience the hell of a Compton? Or can we say, hey, we don't have those problems here. Let's not, let's not invite that. Let's not set ourselves up for that. You know, it's very interesting to me that we live in a very interconnected time. Like we, we, we get the news from all over visually in real time. It's not like there's just an evening newspaper. You know, a hundred years ago, a person in San Antonio had no idea what was going on in California unless somebody wrote him a letter from there. We know. Are we going to? Are we going to embrace it anyway? Are we, or, and, and then are we going to say, geez, we've had enough? What does that mean? So do we know what happened with Southwest uh, Airlines? I mean, Not I know exactly. they lifted the thing, but... I reached out to uh, San Antonio International. They didn't have a statement. They referred me no. to Southwest Airlines. And um, you leave a message and you wait. Mm. That's how that works. I'm so old, I remember when technical issues meant like, you know, stuff was falling off the plane or yeah, the plane right. would crash. The, the, the modern day, when airlines say technical issues, they don't really mean with the planes. Oh, it's, well, and imagine, I mean, look at the planes. You can look at the planes themselves and see how much more computerized and automated things are. And now you've got the same thing happening at the gate. You know, there's yeah. a lot of, lot of technological advances. Yeah. We, uh, you know, we, we mastered flying. We got that. We figured that out. Took, mm-hmm. took hundreds of years, right? Mm-hmm. Now we can't get the planes that we have into the sky on time. And we call it technical issues. Or is it incompetence? Or what? Jack, what is the deal? Jack, booking is tough. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. <laughs> you know? I, I, you know, I don't mean to sound like a Neanderthal, but this, it didn't used to be like this. It's true. Uh, if the plane was okay, it took off and I don't know what happened, but anyway, and, and, and I'm going to say this and I know this is picking a whole nother fight, but, uh, I've never been quite under the, the spell of Southwest Airlines the way some people are. I, I, when years and years ago when I moved down here, people were like, Oh, Southwest Airlines, you got to fly. They're so different. I know right now they look like everybody else. Just saying. All right. If you missed it last night, um, Tucker Carlson had an interview with Elon Musk. The interview is so extensive, it's playing out over two nights on that uh, Fox News Channel show. But last night, they were talking about AI, speaking of technology. And I thought it was very interesting because, as I mentioned yesterday, Elon Musk did something you almost never see. He bought a major company. He made a multi-billion dollar deal without really knowing what he was getting, without completely understanding what he was getting. And he talked about that, and they talked about uh, the purchase of and the discoveries he's made with Twitter. But then he talked about 
This guy he's known for a long time named Larry Page, who's one of the co-founders of Google, and the conversations they used to have about um, AI or digital technology, this is like stuff out of a sci-fi movie. Listen to this story he tells Tucker Carlson on Fox News Channel last night, cut number one. I mean, the, 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 the reason uh, OpenAI exists at all is that um, Larry Page and I used to be close friends, and I would yes. stay at his house in Palo Alto, and I would talk to him late into the night about uh, AI safety. And at least my perception was that Larry was not taking uh, AI safety uh, seriously enough. Um, and um, What did he say about it? He really seemed to be one um, once, once sort of a digital superintelligence, basically digital god, if you will, uh, uh, as soon as possible. Um, he wanted that? Yes. He's, he's made many public statements over the years uh, that, that the whole goal of Google is uh, uh, what's called AGI, artificial general intelligence or artificial superintelligence. But, you know, and, I, and I agree with him that the, there's great potential for good, um, but there's also potential for bad. And so if, if you've got some um, radical new technology, you want to try to take a set of actions that maximize probably it, it will do good and minimize probably it will do bad things. Yes. Um, it, it can't just be health leather. Let's just go, you know, barreling forward and, you know, hope for the best. And then at one point uh, I said, well, what about, you know, we're going to make sure humanity's okay here. Um, <laughs> and, 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 um, uh, and then he called me a speciest. Uh, <laughs> did he use did he use that term? Yes, and there were witnesses. I wasn't the only one there. Now we're we're the species. So if you're overly concerned about what artificial intelligence might mean to humanity, you're a speciest. And and so I'm listening to this, and and I'm thinking, okay, this is not some guy in Hollywood or some guy writing a a thriller or um, some tinfoil hat kook. Elon Musk is, has seen the leading edge of what's coming, and he says this about AI, cut number two. Regulations are really only put into effect after something terrible has happened. That's correct. If that's the case for AI, and we're only putting regulations after something terrible has happened, it may be too late to actually put the regulations in place. The AI may be in control at that point. You think that's real? It is. It is conceivable that AI could take control and reach a point where you couldn't turn it off, and it would be making making decisions for people. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. No, it's that's the, that's definitely the, where things are headed, uh, for sure. That's where things are headed. And um, they also talked about the way that this technology is being manipulated because i've i've wondered about this for a long time we we talk about uh the uh for example the whole the whole the whole controversy with twitter was that it was becoming difficult during covid to find dissenting points of view or to express dissenting points of view but at least you knew they existed if they weren't on twitter and they weren't allowed on these social media platforms there were places you could get them. But what if AI becomes the new encyclopedia and everybody goes there for answers, but the answers are only the talking points of the Democratic Party or the talking points of socialists or the talking points of cultural left-wingers? In other words, the, the quote-unquote right answer is an answer that only they write 
we're not just talking now about things like bias in higher education or, uh, you know, some sort of shadow banning on Twitter. We're talking about the, the unavailability in the, you know, virtual universe of correct information of two plus two is four. We're going to talk more about this coming up. Uh, but I want to get your thoughts on that. I, I, I do think the people I see, not so much Elon Musk, but a lot of the others that I see interviewed, 60 Minutes did an interview with a guy. These seem like very unserious people. And I don't know. I mean, I wasn't around Alexander Graham Bell or Thomas Edison or Henry Ford, but my sense is, I could be wrong, that they weren't like lightweights. Like that maybe when they were conceiving of and inventing what would be life-changing technologies, they were also grounded enough. They had like their feet on the ground. They, they knew a little bit about culture and history. They had some allegiance to the ideas of Western civilization. They weren't going to unleash something that they didn't know what it could do or what it would do. You know, I'm thinking even of, of, uh, you know, the, the, the great breakthroughs Marconi made with wireless communication, which again are, are, we're still feeling the effects of today, even though these men are long dead, long gone. Are the inventors, are the, are the entrepreneurs of AI serious people or are they unserious and even kind of goofy? We close in on early voting. We catch up with another candidate in the city council race, this time in District 9, uh, where Jarrett Lipman is challenging the incumbent District 9 councilman, John Courage. And Jarrett Lipman joins us now on the KTSA Connecticut Quality Water Softeners Newsmaker line. Uh, Mr. Lipman, good afternoon. Welcome to the show. Jack, thanks so much for having me today. How are you? I'm good, thank you. I'm, I'm very interested in, in this race because I would say based on looking at this, that you might be running one of the most uphill uh, battles I I can think of. John Courage has been there for three terms. He's got one more left if he gets it. Um, He is kind of a non-controversial, you know, under-the-radar member of council. I I do remember that uh, prior to his running for council, he was a pretty radical left uh, Democrat, but he's kept that mostly under wraps uh, in his council tenure. Um, and you know the the math, right? I mean, generally, when council members are eligible to be reelected, they almost always are. So I guess my first question to you would be, why are you doing this now and not two years from now? Well, Jack, I think it's a, it's a great question. I appreciate that. Thanks for having me on again. I, I, you know, the councilman is out of touch and out of step with the values of District 9. It's clear. Uh, and I think that six years or close to six years of his leadership, the voters know the truth. They know that, that he doesn't represent their values. He's not represented them on the dais. Crime is up. Uh, he's given a lot of the tax dollars to other districts. And, and I think people are frustrated. And as I'm out going door to door, uh, I hear that frustration. They want someone that, that represents their values. They want someone mm-hmm. that stands up for those conservative voices uh, that, that District 9 is, is a leader in. And, and I think it's really time for a change. That's what, that's what the constituents say. And so I've never been afraid of a challenge, and, and I'm, mm-hmm. I'm ready to take them on. It would seem to be, I don't know for sure, but it seems like it would be the most conservative or one of the most conservative districts, yet 
there's John Courage. Proudly. And I think that's that's the problem, that uh, we are the most conservative district, and, and the councilman's been disingenuous. He is a, a chameleon, as we like to say, and he sort of blends to his environment. And so a lot of voters that may not pay close attention to how he votes on a day-to-day basis, and, and they don't realize uh, that he isn't representing them. Uh, he's, he's a nice guy, and, and I won't be disrespectful to him, uh, but I will say that the quality of life in our district now, especially after six years under his leadership, I think is worse than when he started. And so I, I, I think a lot of people don't realize what he's about and, and what he's for, and that's been a big piece of our campaign is getting that message out there. So I ask every candidate about Prop A. I'm assuming you're not a fan. Um, do, do you have any theory as to why uh, so many of the council members that voted to put it on the ballot uh, now say they don't support it? And and talk to me a little bit about how you think John Courage handled that. Well, we, we opened up on day one coming out strong against Prop A. It's, it's bad management. I mean, this is not just a Republican or Democrat issue. This is bad for San Antonio. And, and you look at other places in the country that have some of these policies and these laws in place, and it, it's just a total disaster. I mean, you've seen the riots in Chicago and what's going on there. You've seen San Francisco. And so I, I think, you know, it, it's easy to kind of stand by and wait to see and, and try to read the tea leaves. But I, I would imagine that the councilman uh, and the mayor and everyone else that have come out, they they know it's bad policy, and 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 they waited, uh, and I think it was really interesting and, until uh, you know the, the councilman took so long and early on said that that the the city attorney had told him not to speak on the issue, uh, and then he comes out suddenly he's against the issue, and and the reality is I'm glad he's against the issue. I'm glad he joined our camp uh, and is waking up to see how bad this is going to be for the district. It's maybe the the first time in the campaign that I've agreed with something. Uh, I just wish that he had been clear and. Therein lies the problem. He waits too long to make his positions known, and he doesn't stand up for what's best for his citizens. Besides that, what what are the other differences? Because I have to say, a lot of times when people run for city council, they talk about the nuts and bolts, constituent service, making the city work. But then when they get on city council, they seem to have these pet uh, issues or, or, you know, virtue signaling positions that are not really about just basically making the city work. Isn't that what city council is for? Operate the city, right? Yes, sir. Limited government operate the city. We, we couldn't agree more on our campaign. So what are some other things about which you differ with him? Well, when we look at the councilman, uh, I think it comes down to how he's managed the district, how he's provided the constituent services. I, I talk all the time that because we're, we tend to be the newest district and there's a lot of assumption that our HOAs can take care of business, uh, he, he tends to rest on, well, you have the best roads, we have the best roads in San Antonio, and so we need to give money away to other areas. And uh, it's frustrating. I, I feel like he takes too long to respond to things like getting trees trimmed over roadways and power lines, uh, getting the potholes filled in can take two years years to be done and we've been trying to get school safety signs outside of johnson high school for five years and magically as we're coming up on this election as we call them out for it it's happening and so i feel like the councilman is comfortable uh he he moves at a, at a snail's pace when it comes to responding to concerns and uh and i think that the, the people in district nine that run businesses and are, are are great managers of their organizations they simply want to have better service than what they're getting right now so i think the biggest difference for me i'm a taskmaster uh i work 
work very hard to, to serve my students and my community at Johnson, and we don't settle for anything but the best. And, and I think that that winning mindset uh, is critical for District 9. District 9 is, is a community of winners and leaders, and they deserve to have someone that's out front helping, helping be at the front of leading our city. You're a music teacher. You were the band director at uh, uh, Lady Bird uh, Johnson High School. I read yes, the sir. Gilbert Garcia column that he wrote about you last month, and I want to ask you about this. Um, sure. for folks that don't know, it, he said that you actually sold, you, you, you resigned from the, the high school and you sold your house to, to be able to, uh, live within or move within the district to run this race. Can you explain that? Absolutely. I, I, I'll be honest. I wish the councilman had been honest with his own constituents. I, I lived in Encino Bluff in the district for 11 years, uh, and I moved up into Timberwood Park right at the beginning of the pandemic. And, and watching the, the management or the, or the lack of leadership uh, that I felt like happened with, with getting our kids back in school and supporting those schools that wanted to be open, it was very frustrating. Uh, and, and, and I know a lot of our constituents feel like the world is upside down right now. And so uh, over a year out from the election, uh, I moved back down into the district. I made the sacrifice, uh, and I've been living in an apartment here uh, in Stone Oak uh, to, so that I could take on the incumbent and, and get, get someone in a leadership role that, that really knows the community and listens. And so I've worked in the district for for 15 years. I've lived in the district almost my entire time in San Antonio, uh, and, and it, it's a sacrifice. I'm willing to be here as long as it takes to get the right leadership on council. Um, so my house in Timberwood right now is rented out. It's a wonderful couple. They've renewed their lease. They're going to be there, uh, and I'm in District 9 as long as it takes to get this mess cleaned up. All right, Jarrett Lipman running against John Courage in District 9. The website is Vote for Jarrett dot com vote for jarrett dot com and uh, i appreciate your coming on with us today and uh and the best of luck to you hey thank you so much i appreciate you too have a great night all right jarrett lipman with us on the ktsa Connecticut quality water softeners newsmaker line what did you think of district nine council candidate jarrett lipman who's running against john courage who's got one more term he can be eligible for and is uh he was on with us earlier in this uh season of of campaigning and uh he's running for his fourth and final term and um if you live in the district if you heard the interview i'm just curious to know what you think we've had some people look i'm not going to name names we've had some people that i cannot believe uh, were able to fill out the the ballot application they just sounded incompetent uh, Jarrett Lippman sounded like he knew his stuff. He sounded sounded very grounded. Um, District Nine is kind of a a, a, a puzzlement to me. Um, it's had some very interesting and colorful uh, representatives. We went through a little, the whole Elisa Chan thing there um, with District Nine. Uh, when John Courage won that race, I was really surprised because we had covered him on this show years ago when he was running against Lamar Smith. Uh, who was then the Republican congressman in the seat that is now held by Chip Roy. And, and John Courage was not just a Democrat. I mean, he was a, like, socialist Democrat. And you could have knocked me over with a feather when District 9, which is one of the most, if not the most conservative districts in the city, it's the North Central uh, Council District, uh, elected him and keeps electing him. Uh, it, it really, to me, I would, I've, I've often cited that race 
and that phenomenon, and, and nothing against John Courage as a person. He seems like a nice guy. But if if District 9 keeps putting him in, then that just tells me my 10% theory is right on, that you really don't. Most people who live in most parts of our city are content to leave the decision-making to other people. They're not, they're not very connected or, or interested in city government. Uh, they, they believe, I, I think incorrectly, but it's just my opinion, they believe that that's not really where the action is. You don't meet people that have no opinion about who the president is. Right? You, don't, you that, That's almost unheard of. But you meet people here all the time that don't know who their council member is, don't know which district they're in, don't really think it matters, and the voting turnout shows that. Look, I'm not lecturing. I'm not, I'm not wagging my finger. You do whatever you want to do, but we're a city where we leave the decision making to the 10% that turn out and vote. And that's how you get some of these outcomes. So we'll see. Uh, 210 599 5555. I was listening to that story that uh, Christian had in the news about, you've probably heard it, Bear County commissioners are uh, agreeing with the San Antonio Spurs that they can play some more games away from San Antonio. So they're going to play in Austin, they're going to play in Mexico City. And um, the quote from one of the commissioners was, we trust the Spurs. Because remember, when the Spurs first floated the idea of playing some quote-unquote home games, like in Austin, immediately people's minds went to, oh, well, they're going to move. And that, this has happened in other cities around the country where if the, if the, the fan base or the commercial base for the team is considered weak or small, there is the temptation to go elsewhere or split your time elsewhere. The Tampa Bay Rays are going through this in baseball right now. And and so I, I thought it was aw- aw- an odd choice of a word or words for the commissioner's court to say, well, we trust the Spurs. Um, you trust them to do what? Because, look, the Spurs are a business. And I'm not. this is not me running down the Spurs. The Spurs are a business. Not only do I expect them to move to Austin if that's better for them, they have to do that. They have to do that. If that's better, they got to do it. It's, it's nothing to do with trust. It's not a handshake agreement. Do you remember what it took to get the AT&T Center built? Why wasn't that a trust issue? You know, it's all business. When I hear elected officials say that, I know they know that that's baloney. That's not how it works. It has nothing to do with trust. It's just, it's insulting to you, is my point. To act like this is some sort of loyalty thing is insulting. You know, and I know that's not how it works. And I'm not putting them down. The Spurs are a business. I love having them here. But if they go somewhere else, that'll be because it makes more sense business-wise to do. You don't, you, you don't stay in a city because you got a, a trust relationship with the city council or the commissioner, the county commissioners or whatever the, the governing body is. I mean, come on. This is a lot, there's a lot of this now in politics. You know, we, I find myself saying this a lot. They, they really do think we're idiots. 
And they really do talk about stuff as if we will just drink it right on down. 210-599-5555. Listen to this. Uh, California's public utilities, electric, you know, utilities, are considering a plan for fixed-rate utility bills based on your income. Not on how much power you use, but on how much you make. So your bill would be determined by your income range. And um, so if you, may, if you say your household makes twenty eight dollars to $69,000 a year, your bill would be $20 a month. Doesn't matter. You can leave the lights on. You can, doesn't matter. Now, that is absolutely insane. That isn't just socialism. That's socialism on steroids. That's socialism on fentanyl. That's socialism on crack cocaine. That's a socialism orgy. That, that, that is, Here you have a state that cannot generate enough power for its current needs, despite the fact that people are leaving it. A state that is cramming electric cars into the marketplace. By law, no one is mandating them harder and faster than California, despite not having enough electricity now. And then you're going to say, well, we're not going to charge based on usage but based on income. I, 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 I hate to say this, but it's sort of like what we were saying about the people in Compton telling the television station we've had enough. I don't think they have had enough in California. And I don't say this with hatred in my heart. I, my brother lives in California. I have family. I have friends in California. It's a great state. It has a great place in our history. But they apparently they've just not had enough yet. I'm not sure what it will look like when they have had enough. It's not going to look like the California we remember. And again, this is a proposal, so we'll see where it goes. But yeah, fixed rate utility bills where you would not pay for the usage. You would be billed based on your income. And, 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 you know, the other thing that's weird about that, it's, it's socialism, but it's also, I can remember when, Conservation was a big thing. And if you, if you disengage a utility bill total from usage, how do you get any conservation? You don't. You wouldn't. Right? How in the world would that work? I mean, it wouldn't, obviously. So watching California is like watching an entire state destroy itself. And the wonder is not that they're doing it. The wonder is that anybody anywhere, i.e. here, would be copying that. We have a uh, Jack Chat line you can hit up if you're not able to call on the live show, either because you're not listening live or because you just don't have a, uh, maybe the time or you have a job where you can't be on hold. You can always hit the Jack Chat line, leave your first name, your town or city, and your comment. It's 210 599 so maybe you missed a topic that we were on earlier and you now have something you want to say about it. Perfect time to hit that 210-599-5550 for the Jack Chat line. We'll play some of those coming up uh, next hour. 
We've talked about uh, this throughout the show, the poll question today. Would you consider the Riverwalk to be a tourist trap? A survey done by a property management company called Casargo, Casago, I guess it is, says they ranked the top ten biggest tourist traps in the country, and they put the Riverwalk at number eight on that list. And I, I think it's a, a, we've learned over the course of this discussion, starting when I brought it up with Christian and then we took calls, the, the term tourist trap is, is people are pretty vague about it. Like it means different things to different people. And some people actually think it's a compliment, like it means a place that a lot of tourists go to. But see, the word trap is your giveaway there. It's, a, it's not a, a compliment to call a place a tourist trap. It's a tourist trap. All right, so I'm going with this definition. A tourist trap to me is a place tourists are lured to but then have a painful or disappointing experience. Painful financially or otherwise or disappointing or not live up to the hype. Is this this it? Is that all there is? Would you say the Riverwalk is a tourist trap by that definition? So we have some definition to work on. Like I would say, when I used to go downtown a lot, I would say the old River Center Mall was a tourist trap. I mean, it wasn't a very good mall. It had stuff you could get at other places, but everything was more. River Center Mall, definitely a tourist trap. Ripley's Believe It or Not, and that little complex there across from yeah, definitely a tourist trap. Not worth it. But, I mean, just like walking along the Riverwalk, and like Esteban said, even if you don't spend any money, there's the people watching, there's the architecture, uh, there's a vibe that's, that's very just kind of relaxing and very San Antonio. And I will say it's hard to believe you're in the middle of one of the ten biggest cities in the country when you're down there on the Riverwalk. It just doesn't feel that way. I would I would not rate that a tourist trap. If you're saying that when you go downtown, it costs more to park and it costs more to eat and it costs more to drink, that's true of every downtown of every city in the country. Okay. Anywhere you go, if you go to a city and you go to the place where they want the tourists or where they're trying to draw in the tourists, yes, they, they, they get extra, you know, they get extra money off them. Of course they do because they know the locals will, drive around and find bargains and find out-of-the-way places and they'll eat in the suburbs and it's just different right but I, I to me and i'm not i'm not being a homer here i would not call it a tourist trap at all i think it's the opposite of one what do you think it's our jr poll today 210-599-5555 we're talking about that coming up in the next hour after the news and also you have heard a lot uh, of the tension going on right now between communist China and Taiwan, right? Taiwan is an independent country. Uh, the Republic of Taiwan is in fact a, a U.S. ally. It's a thriving democracy. And yet, because it was founded by people that left China when the communists took over, in fact, it was established by the government in exile, the, the government that the communists supplanted, picked up and moved to Taiwan, set up shop there, existed there. So the Chinese, the communist Chinese 
uh, say it's a breakaway province or republic and they want it back and there's all this talk about war and will they attack it and will the United States respond? One of the candidates for president this this election, Vivek Ramaswamy, has an idea for Taiwan. And you probably have never heard this idea before suggested for Taiwan. It's an idea you're very familiar with. But he's the first one I've heard say it about Taiwan. I'm going to tell you what he said. We're going to see what you think about it. Well, we have something that can maybe offset the uh, tourist trap ranking a little bit. I just saw this. Um, We have made a list of the cheapest 10 cities in the country. Is that good? Are we happy about that? Did San Antonio make it, or are you just making this? Oh, San Antonio did. Uh, This is a financial advice company called Smart Asset. They ranked 78 cities to determine which were the cheapest and most expensive to live in based on the purchasing power uh, of $100,000 a year. Um, And basically what they said, for example, is in Honolulu, which is the most expensive city. I didn't know that. I thought it would be San Francisco, maybe, Mm -hmm. or New York. Honolulu, you would need $310,000 for the purchasing power of $100,000. Yeah. San Antonio was tied for seventh on the list of cheapest major U.S. cities. Memphis was number one. El Paso was number two. Then Oklahoma City, Corpus, Lubbock, Houston. Really? Uh, imagine Houston ahead of San Antonio? Hmm. Um, and then San Antonio was in a tie uh, for seventh with um, Fort Worth and Arlington, and St. Louis rounds out the top ten. I love that Texas economy, no? So, and and by che- they meant, you know, cheap prices, not that we're cheap people. <laughs> I'm glad you clarified. That may I don't know about that. That's a different survey. <laughs> All right. 210-599-5555. Would you say that the tur- that the Riverwalk is a tourist trap? Today's JR poll. Um, and we'll have the results on the poll later in the hour, but uh, what do you think? Now, I understand if you live here or around San Antonio, you're not hanging out there every weekend. You're not going out there. That's not your nighttime go-out place. Maybe you only take out-of-town company. Maybe you only go once in a blue moon. Maybe it's been many years since you went. But it is for tourists. I mean, it's, it, it, you know, the concierge just send them there. The whole, the whole, the whole, uh, Tourism infrastructure funnels people into that area for the Riverwalk and the Alamo and surrounding things. And now I, would, I think you could probably add, like, you know, Southtown and that area. Um, I, I don't think it's a tourist trap. I don't. Um, and, I mean, the the probably the biggest impediment for us to go there would be maybe you, you don't want to drive that far and maybe you don't want to pay to park and maybe there are restaurants and things that you like closer to home, but I have lived in places, I have lived in places that had tourist traps where if you were a a native or a resident in that city and you went to that district or that place or that venue, people would think you were crazy. (laughs) What the hell are you doing? Why would you go there? I don't, I don't feel that way about the Riverwalk. I don't see it that way. Uh, What do you think? 210-599-5555. And if, and if you, have another place in mind that you think is a tourist trap around here, what would you say 
constitutes a tourist trap. 210-599-5555. We've talked about Vivek Ramaswamy before. He's um, running for president. Uh, He's a tech entrepreneur kind of guy. Interesting guy. Um, I don't know. I don't know what his chances are as far as the presidency, but he's running for the Republican uh, nomination. He's a smart, definitely a smart guy. He was giving a speech to the NRA, and he said that if you want to prevent or frustrate China from invading Taiwan, what we should do is export the Second Amendment, to Taiwan. What Taiwan needs is armed citizenry. What do you think about that? Now, he was speaking to the NRA, and he's been dinged for some of the other stuff he said. But his point was that it's a lot harder to invade or suppress a people with their own means of resistance. It's just harder. Even in, yes, I know, even in the nuclear age and modern warfare and hypersonic uh, missiles and so forth and so on. I, I realize we're, you know, we're, we're living in a time where warfare is, um, so advanced. But look what's happening right now in Ukraine. Look what's happening. In fact, in many parts of the world, where superpowers, and we're one of them, get bogged down in a place where there are a lot of weapons and people who know how to use them, and there is a a agile and determined resistance. When you have that, your you know superlative technology or your your um, you know state of the art uh, weaponry is of limited value. Because you have to get into the neighborhoods, you have to go street by street, you have to suppress and repress uh, people, and 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 frankly, it's not impossible, but it's hard. So he made this argument that what they need, what Taiwan needs, is the Second Amendment. And I was thinking about this because we were founded on this idea. We did not have, when our, at the founding of our country, we did not have a standing military. We did not have a professional military. There was not a Department of Defense. One did not have a career in the United States Army. Our, at our founding, our defense was our citizenry. It was the fact that almost every household had a musket or a gun. And people knew how to use them, and people would rally together, maybe a village, a town, and then eventually maybe a state in the form of a militia, and maybe you'd call up your militia. But but that's how we did it. And there was a uh, speech that Abraham Lincoln, this is an oft-quoted Abraham Lincoln speech. He gave it very early in his public life. He was speaking to the to a, um, like a, a, a public forum, almost like a TED Talk, in 1838, so this is 22 years before he's elected president, and he's giving a talk, and he says this, he's imagining what it would, what would happen if foreign powers tried to invade 
the United States. And he said, all the armies of Europe, Asia, and Africa combined, with all the treasure of the earth in their military chests, with a Napoleon for a commander, could not by force take a drink from the Ohio River or make a track on the Blue Ridge if they tried a thousand years, he said. You know what he was describing? He was describing what today we call a gun culture. And when people say that today, they say it in a pejorative sense, like there's too many guns and people resort to shooting each other over parking places. That's what they mean when they say gun culture. But what that, what that meant historically was a populace that was armed. And so Vivek Ramaswamy may have been tongue-in-cheek, and he may not be completely right about Taiwan, although I do think he has a point. But then it made me think about this quote from Lincoln, and are we that people today? Do you think we are the people he described? That if if they came for us today, because of the, the, the number, the sheer quantity of armed Americans... And we know there's a lot of them because the politicians never stop talking about it. There's so many guns. Are we the people Lincoln described in 1838? He said you could, you could, if, if all the major powers of that time, 185 years ago, had, had joined forces, they wouldn't even get into this country, much less subjugate it. So is he right about us 185 years later? What would you say? 210-599-5555. Now, his formula just didn't call just for a lot of guns. It also called for those guns to be in the hands of people who had a passion and a willingness to defend and preserve our way of life. So, yes, we have the hardware. We have the guns. But are we the people that would say, you're not changing us? You're not taking us down. We won't bow to you. We won't kneel to you. Because I have to say, I see a lot of bowing and kneeling right now, and there are no guns required. I see a lot of us giving up and giving in to men in dresses, to put it bluntly. I see a lot of people losing their way and and forgetting who they are and who we are And there's no force involved at all. Lincoln said something else in that speech that's really interesting. This this part doesn't get quoted as often. But right after he talked about how if all the powers in Europe banded together, then he said this. At what point, then, is the approach of danger to be expected? Like, could this happen? He says, I answer... If it ever reaches us, meaning our destruction, it must spring up amongst us. It cannot come from abroad. If destruction be our lot, we must ourselves be its author. As a nation of free men, we must live through all time or die by suicide. So what he's saying is the, 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 the power that could take us down is us. Imagine you said this 185 years ago. Have you ever, have you thought that? Have you ever thought that about our country today? Because I think it all the time. I I know we are rightly concerned about foreign adversaries, but we are doing more damage to ourselves than they could probably do. 
and we are doing it willingly. We are voting for it. We are asking for it. They must be watching and going, are we even going to have to, you know, lift a finger? So in the early days of our country when there wasn't a professional military, the people who were armed were the deterrent. And early in his public life, Abraham Lincoln even said, I don't think the combined forces of Europe could overcome the armed American citizenry. And obviously things are different today because today our presumption of national defense is that it's professionalized and it's highly sophisticated and we would be the last line, not the first line. But are we still that people? And is that really what the Second Amendment is ultimately about? And Vivek Ramaswamy running for president and a guy that doesn't talk like a conventional politician, whatever you think of him, says, you know, that's what they need in Taiwan. They need to be armed. They need to be a people who would be hard to conquer, hard to suppress, hard to control. Because it's not that a superpower can't vanquish a rival's military. I mean, the the fighting might be over in a matter of days, just in terms of air force to air force or navy to navy. But but then you have the the hard part. We we saw this in Afghanistan, Iraq, and a lot of other places, even in in wars of yesteryear. The hard part in World War II would have been going into Japan. I mean, not that Guadalcanal wasn't hard, not that the island hopping wasn't hard, not that Iwo Jima wasn't hard. It was inc- they were meat grinders of battles. But everyone knew, from the generals on down to the fighting man, that, that the invasion of the home islands of Japan would be horrific. I was having this conversation with a friend the other night about the, the use of the atomic bombs. The atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki only makes sense if you're thinking about the carnage of invading Japan with U.S. and allied troops and the Japanese citizens running at our tanks with broom handles and and what have you. So Ramaswamy saying, hey, the Taiwanese need to be a hard people to, to vanquish. I think he's got something. I wonder if we are, you know? I think it would depend on where you went in. And I don't mean to sound flippant about this. It's obviously a horrible concept. But, but imagine, imagine a, a, a nation or a, a, an entity, a power, a whatever, is trying to invade the continental United States. Lincoln says they'd never get very far. I think it might depend where they came in. Like, if they came in across the Texas border, I don't think they'd get very far. If they came in in New England, I think they would make it quite a ways in. I'm not putting anybody down. They don't have guns. And they trust others will defend them. They have outsourced their protection to others. They are assuming, presuming that it's not up to them. But we live in a part of the country where people assume, presume it is up to them. I think it would depend where they came in. And I wonder if I wonder if, if if other countries, I mean, you know they have all kinds of war plans and stuff on the shelf and Plan Z and, you know, 
crazy stuff that'll probably never be done. Do they think about this country that way, the way Lincoln describes it? Is that even in the in the in the thought processes? Is that in the war colleges? Is that when they have symposiums? Because you're seeing it in a modern war. You're seeing what's happened when a superpower went into another country with vastly superior technology and everything else, but with a people that are not easily suppressed. It's not going very well. It may, it, it, it may wind up that they prevail, but they're going to prevail, I'm talking about Russia, obviously, at a very high cost. Are we still that people that Lincoln described, that Ramaswamy describes, 